Greetings, everyone. My name is Dr. Jamar Tisby, and welcome to the next installment of Those Meddling Kids Unmasking the Anti-CRT Crusade in Christian Higher Ed. Why Those Meddling Kids? Well, if you remember back to the Scooby-Doo cartoons, there would be this whole caper, this whole mystery that they spent the episode trying to solve. And at the end, they would unmask the villain and the perpetrator who would invariably say, and I would have gotten away with it too, if it wasn't for those meddling kids. So here we are, we've got students at Christian colleges and universities who have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to want to see racial justice and racial progress and think that their institutions should help them. And so for the people who don't want that, they might seem like those meddling kids. Well, in this installment, we have a dear friend of mine who is also an expert and has extensive experience in Christian higher ed and fighting racism. Please welcome and welcome to you, Dr. Otis Pickett. Thank you, Dr. Tisby. I really appreciate you having me. <laughs> folks, folks should know that you have played an integral role in my life, not only as a, as a, as a dear friend and brother, but also in helping me uh, navigate um, his history and becoming an academic historian. So uh, if, if, if we bust up and cut up in here, it's because we have a long <laughs> deep history together. Uh, we were together in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, for folks who don't have the pleasure, privilege, and honor of knowing you as well as I do, Tell us about your academic background and your professional work. Well, let me just say, Jamar, what an absolute honor it is to be on here. I just think the world of you, I'm so thankful for you. I'm just so excited that you're a historian and doing the work of history and the way that you're doing it. And you've absolutely inspired me to take history beyond academia beyond the classroom to people to students to the broader public and so the venues that you do that has been so inspiring to me and so many others so i'm just so excited to see your work uh going forward and your books and we're all just so encouraged by you um my background is i fell in love with history uh, around the dinner table uh, with my family talking about it and then mm. taking me to historic sites and then having access to those historic, historic sites, riding my bike around where I grew up on Sullivan's Island. Mm. Uh, I came to Clemson University in uh, 1999 and studied history and fell in love with it. Um, I just continued that in uh, graduate school and seminary studying church history, and I was really interested in why um, churches segregated in the 1870s um, and why they were continued to be segregated in the 20th century. Like, why was that happening in the one place where it should not have been happening? What caused that? So I've kind of spent my whole career trying to unravel that very complex, difficult ball of yarn. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And uh, I tried to do that more with my master's degree at the College of Charleston in history. Um, just coming into the College of Charleston uh, really changed my whole academic trajectory working at mm-hmm. the Avery Center for African American History and Culture and having to relearn the history of the city where I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina through the lens of the African American experience. Um, and that really shaped 
my academic research, going into my PhD studies, which was at the University of Mississippi, uh, and coming to Mississippi, realizing the continuity between what I was studying and researching and sort of what we were seeing happening on the modern landscape in Mississippi uh, right. with regard to sy systemic injustice and how that was being perpetuated. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's a little bit about yeah, my background yeah. there. And, and you just started a new position, but tell us, mm -hmm. tell us where you were and where you are now. So I started, my first job was at the University of Mississippi. Uh, I taught at the University of Mississippi Tupelo campus. I then came to a 10, almost 10 year career at Mississippi College, which is a member school of the Coalition of Christian Colleges and Universities. It's in Clinton, Mississippi. It's the first, well, oldest institution of higher learning in the state of Mississippi and the second oldest Baptist college in the country mm. um, behind Belmont. And uh, I was there 10 years, got to be involved in a lot of great discussions around these topics, um, learned a lot from colleagues and their research on these topics, and uh, was able to do some research of my own. And uh, that led to a desire to want to come back home to South Carolina um, and help Clemson University process its history with the ongoing yeah. work of the wonderful, amazing Dr. Rhonda Thomas and um, David Marcus and um, yeah. uh, Joshua Catalano and a lot of folks doing incredible work here to process uh, Clemson history. So that's what I just started three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So learning the Congratulations to you. And, and, and I wanted folks to know that because you have an extensive background in Christian higher ed and you've been an active force in working for greater racial awareness and racial progress on those campuses so you're an ideal person for us to talk to you grace us with your presence let me ask you this um i know most of the folks i'm talking to in this series are not critical race theory scholars but because of this crusade against crt we've all had to sort of become students of it and so I, I want to know from your perspective, what's important for people to know about critical race theory, whether accurate information or clearing up misunderstandings? What, do you, what, what would you convey to them about CRT? Um, that it's not what you're hearing from political pundits and it's not what you're hearing from your local representatives and it's not what you're hearing from the pre former president and it's not what you're hearing from your state legislatures and it's not what you're hearing from your news outlets. Um, it is a very specific field of study that has a rootedness in the 1970s that has developed over time that reading an introductory book on critical race theory is not make you an expert, as Nathan Cartagena has said. Um, I would, I would really strongly recommend any Christian seriously thinking about CRT to read Nathan Cartagena's stuff at um, at Wheaton. Mm -hmm. uh, he has been uh, <laughs> someone who has guided me through this unwittingly. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know me, but his work is just so timely because. Um, we were all told as historians and who are caring about race justice issues that we were critical race theorists. And many of us <laughs> right. were going, what, like what <laughs> it's, it's one uh, framework to consider along with the dozens of others that we're looking at when we study history and we do historiography. Um, and so I, I will say I've, I've benefited from it greatly, especially with regard to critical prison studies, as mm. I do a lot of work around prisons. Um, and it's helped me 
see the ways in which prisons developed out of the convict lease system that was intentionally racialized and intentionally white supremacist. Um, and as we're doing abolitionist pedagogy with my colleague, Dr. Alexander, um, it, it helps us figure out ways in which we can reimagine incarceration in America. And, and, and that wouldn't be the case if critical race theory was not informing uh, uh, justice work, or I'm sorry, criminal justice work. Um, and so it, you can't explain it in a, in a simple mm -hmm. sentence because every field is touched by critical race theory. Mm -hmm. Education is touched by it. Sociology, history, uh, uh, theology, a variety of different fields have proponents of critical race theory that write through that lens. And I think it's essentially being used as a blunt force instrument to just yeah. stop any kind of discussion on race in America. Right. I right. think people are, I think especially, especially a lot of folks who look like me are sick of, are sick of hearing about issues of race. And they're yeah. just using this as a, as a tool to end the discussion. Right. And this is not new. Um, this was happened in the civil rights movement. This has happened in the 1830s with the rise of abolitionism. Uh, mm. This has happened all throughout American history. It's the latest iteration of folks uh, wanting to shut down where our society is heading by saying, if you're a proponent of, of justice, you're an enemy uh, to the nation or an enemy to progress or an enemy to uh, um, institutions or Christianity. Yeah. And, it, and yeah. it's just unbelievable to me because as, as Christians, we should be critical thinkers. We should be people mm -hmm. who engage in search for truth. And it, and it just, it, it blows my mind that we would stop short of that uh, just because we don't like maybe some of the outcomes or maybe some of the things it's showing us. I really appreciate that. I think that touches people right where they are to say that they've heard these voices, whether politicians or pastors or, or teachers, uh, saying what they say critical race theory is, which is far afield from the actual academic yeah. study and discipline. And yeah. I just want to make clear to folks, uh, because I just I, I can already see the comments that um, none of the folks I'm talking to is saying that critical race theory is perfect or they mm. subscribe to every tenant of it. But as you said, it's it's one of many academic fields and, and theories that we can utilize helpfully if we accurately understand it to yeah. uh, work toward justice. So I appreciate that foundation. You mentioned, you know, the historical continuity like this. This is the latest inter iteration under the, the banner of critical race theory. But it's, there's been other iterations. What I really want to drill down in our conversation is how did historically, Christian colleges and universities become such vectors for um, opposing racial justice as opposed to promoting racial justice. Many of these schools were segregated at their start or were blatantly uh, racist and white supremacist. And it, like you said, you know, we see this in the church. How can it be that the one institution that should be most open-minded and inclusive of all kinds of people become so narrow. I think something similar could be said of Christian colleges and universities. From your perspective as a historian, how does that happen? That's a really great question, Jamar. Um, it's, it, I don't think you can tease out 
the history of Christian higher ed apart from the historical context of uh, American religious history on mm-hmm. in our unique landscape and time. And so what I mean by that is as Christianity spreads around the world, it has a unique experience. It has a unique experience on the Korean Peninsula. It has a unique experience in Africa. It has a unique cultural experience in South America um, and in North America as Christianity is growing in the First and Second Great Awakening. It's growing in a context that is dependent upon enslaved labor, absolutely dependent upon and built by enslaved labor. And so you see Christians in this context uh, working to justify this system that they absolutely had to have to survive Mm -hmm. or they thought they had to have to survive. And so rather than asking questions about whether or not the treatment of these human beings was consistent with uh, how we love our neighbor in God's word, we see theologians and pastors going to every length they can to justify this system biblically. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, the institution of slavery and how we think about race in America and how we think about uh, women in America and how we think about uh, indigenous people in America is shaped by that historical context. And then we're going to see uh, Christian higher education coming out of those churches and out of those denominations. Mm-hmm. Right. And so those churches, those schools are going to reflect in its leadership, in its early faculty, in its early uh, uh, the ways in which the institutions are structured, the ways in which policies are created, are going to come with the ideologies embedded in uh, mid-19th century church social thought. Yeah, uh, And so um, in, in a lot of ways, the, the higher education institutions are just going to reflect the church. But then as they get involved in higher ed, as we move into the 20th century and you've got um, more and more federal support, federal oversight, more and more state involvement, more and more scholarship money, institutions move slower. Mm-hmm. Right. Institutions are hesitant to change. Institutions are hesitant to um, uh, t- any institution is typically conservative. Right. They're typically going to be cautious and deliberate. Um, they're not going to typically be out on the forefront leading on these conversations, even non-Christian institutions. Right. Uh, and so um, and so uh, I, I think uh, in a lot of ways, they. Christian higher ed is a reflection of Christian culture starting in the early 19th century and even 18th century. And I'll say this too, small Christian colleges for many years were governed by denominations, funded by denominations, um, typically led by pastors, typically Mm -hmm. had boards of trustees who were very involved in the hiring uh, of faculty and staff and what was being said by those faculty and staff. And so those are individuals with a lot of power on the landscape, uh, typically board of trustee members uh, in the U.S. South in the early 19th century were slaveholders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so had an embedded interest in the institutions that they're helping to fund, continuing to promote those, in- those ideologies. Um, and so, and, and so uh, it, it shouldn't be a surprise to us 
Yes. As historians, that Christian institutions are hesitant uh, in, in, in these conversations um, and deliberate and in some ways just not even not even engaging. That's right. Or in some ways becoming bastions of uh, a ways they they can push back against racial justice and progress. Um, you also have issues of integration and not mm. and and white supremacist views of intermarriage in the 1950s and 60s that frankly many uh, white uh, inst- leaders of Christian institutions did not want black men attending their campuses and potentially dating white daughters their white That's daughters right. and so uh, that that in for many Southern, particularly Southern Christian universities will continue into the late 1960s, early 1970s. Yeah. I wrote about uh, Bob Jones university in particular and how that literally became a federal case. Uh, right down the road. Yeah. Yep. Yes. So uh, this is not ancient history. You know, yes. you know, it's important for folks to realize. And I think what you're, 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 you're drawing is an important connection uh, between the church and institutes of higher education, um, even ones that today would not be uh, overtly affiliated with a a, a Christian denomination, often had uh, roots in the church or a denomination. And what you're saying is essentially the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No. And so, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, they. sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. Uh, Go, for go, ahead, it, go ahead, Jamar. <laughs> we do this to each other. We we talk, I back and forth. but I forget. Um, I'm on a podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say. So if we have to address this anti CRT crusade on multiple fronts, including in the pulpit, in the discipleship that's happening in churches and local congregations, because to some extent there's still that connection between what is being taught or not taught in churches and what is happening in Christian institutes of higher ed, I would say, especially on the conservative side. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's important to recognize, too, that Christian higher institutions are enrollment driven. There you go. They're donor driven. And they're typically being supported in some way by their denomination. And, um, if churches are going to be supporting a school and the church sees the school as drifting from its original mission or as becoming woke or as becoming right, like something that is not reflective of their current ideology, they may use the power of their checkbook and the power of where they help send their children and grandchildren to, to put pressure on that institution to not engage in this discussion. That's right. That's and right. so the, the schools that are doing this work are really kind of very intentionally going out on a limb and very intentionally um, trying to help their donor base and their leadership and their students understand how central this work is to our faith. That's good. That's good. Because what you're talking about here is actually a practical action step, that there is a teaching component, a discipleship component that has to extend to alumni and donors, as well as uh, folks' internal constituents of the the institution. There, there, There has to be an um, intentional effort to help people understand that this is, racial justice is integral to what it means to follow Jesus. Now, what I what I want to get at is, 
when we think of these administrators, these alumni, these trustees, let's be as gracious as possible and assume that most of them aren't being malicious in their intent, right? Right. Like when they, when they do what I would characterize as opposed racial justice efforts, they're not doing it because they hate black people or they just don't want to see, um, you know, racial harmony or whatever it might be. They don't set out to be racist or act in racist ways yet. It still happens. So from your perspective, what do you think they're missing or misunderstanding as institutional leaders? (laughs) Well, and I speak of one as one who has received great grace, mm-hmm. um, who has had his eyes uh, opened by brothers and sisters, by the Holy Spirit, by reading and studying history for decades. I mean, when you're in this place and you see this institution that was so central to your experience and you see it beginning to change from mm-hmm. what you so deeply valued. And if that value system did not include diversity, if it did not include the importance of having a different different ethnic ethnicities on campus and include valuing having a variety of perspectives and include valuing pushing for the civic rights of people and pushing for valuing the beauty of multi-ethnic marriage and the beauty of uh, diversity in God's creation, if those were not tenets of your experience, you're going to assume that what you experienced was not only normal, but what is superior is the way things should be. Yeah. And when institutions begin to talk about this, I would imagine that lots of folks have fear Um, that some folks have concerns that they cannot control anymore and they have a sense of losing control, Um, that they are reflecting upon current uh, modern uh, responses from politicians to issues of race in our country, and they see their institutions that they deeply love going those directions. Um, And so rather than lovingly engaging uh, faculty and staff who are caring about these issues and wanting to learn about how we can think about these things biblically, there tends to be a defensiveness rooted in fear and concern that kind of governs how individuals begin to engage. That's right. And um, really, really thoughtful university presidents and upper administration I have seen have done a great job of shepherding their trustees, caring for their trustees in these places and their donors, and trying to help them understand um, why this is so central to following Jesus, caring for our neighbor, and the role that the Christian university can play in helping to care for our neighbor. I appreciate that very loving and gracious, uh, empathetic response. you are a, 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 an educator. You've been in the classroom for many, many years. You teach teachers. When you first encounter students in your classes, what kinds of ideas about race and racism are they coming in with? I mean, are they primed to believe these anti-CRT myths? Do they have much background in race at all? What are you seeing? Not much background at all. Um, I've taught largely in South Carolina and Mississippi 
So um, the amount of instruction on issues of race in America that they're getting in the K-12 context is minimal, if any. Um, largely, the students that I come in contact with have been deeply informed by their parents, um, deeply informed by their churches, um, and deeply informed by their peers who they're hanging out with. Um, uh, I'll say since about 2016, 2017, I, my students in Christian higher ed have come in already on the defensive, waiting mm. to hear certain words, waiting to hear me talk about race, waiting to um, sound the alarm. Wow. Whereas what I found in, from 08 to 2016 is students were super open, engaged, interested, um, uh, ha had never really thought through and we're like, wow, had never really considered that. And now you're seeing students come already in some ways sort of hardened, mm. which has made my job um, more interesting because it's required uh, a different sort of pedagogy. It's required a much more ministerial approach to how mm. I'm caring for my students and helping them think through it in a way that says, listen, you, I'm not undermining those that you love and what they've told you but here are some facts and here are some documents i want you to read and just read it and let's talk about it and and you're just conf you have to get it back to a bare bones what's true what's factual and 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 you can still love your family and your church and believe these things mm, that is a great word it's it's really i mean it sits heavy with me that um folks would in the past few years come in, you know, almost, almost ready for a confrontation uh -huh. instead of uh, with more uh -huh. curiosity, but I do appreciate, and I know it's been effective for you to um, approach it with that, that more ministerial voice and helping shepherd them along in their knowledge journey. Um, yeah. Getting practical, you've actually been heavily involved in efforts at racial justice and racial progress in the institutions that you've been involved in. So as we think about higher ed in particular, can you tell us about some of those efforts and initiatives with the hope, my hope is that it sparks some ideas and um, initiative sure. on other folks? Yeah, um, it, it's, I think uh, when it comes to racial justice and equity work, we have to find where we are, what's our context, what is the history of our context? Where are people currently experiencing suffering? Where are they currently experiencing injustice? And partnering with people who are already doing work and coming alongside people who are already doing work, listening to them, figuring out what it is exactly that the issues are. Uh, and then uh, partnering with like-minded people and, and figuring out things that you can do to draw awareness to that and engage in that and advocate in that space in a real, for me, it's always been heavily relational. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm not one to, I don't want to do something for the sake of it looking good or do something for the sake of it like this might look like it's engaging. Like for me, it's about people. And I want to have relationships with people and I want to do something that affects their lives in a way that's partnering. That's not me coming in and be like, I need to fix this situation. Right. It's you're already doing it and you've been living it and your families have been living it, but there's a, a piece that's missing. And how can I bring some of 
some resources or some other people and connections and networks to that situation that can begin to amplify the work you're already doing. Uh, yeah. So uh, an example would be um, in, 20, in 2013, Dr. Alexander, Patrick Alexander at the University of Mississippi and I um, went and visited Parchman. And we just started talking to incarcerated students at, at Parchman and what they were interested in doing. And they had courses in theology. They were taking courses through New Orleans Seminary. But they also said, hey, we want some upper-level history courses. Can you guys do that? All right. They already wanted it. That's what they wanted. Mm -hmm. That's what this community wanted. And so just going there and listening and talking and engaging people as human beings and saying, okay, what can we bring to bear with our resources at the University of Mississippi? Uh, we were able to start a program called the Mississippi Prison to College Pipeline Program, which you have taught for and taught in yes. and uh, have blessed many, many brothers coming through Unit 25 at Parchman. Uh, and so um, that experience expanded to Central Mississippi Correctional Facility in 2016, where we became the first in-state program to offer higher education courses to incarcerated women in 2016. Uh, and it's that work is continuing. And I'm actually uh, working on trying to expand that work here in South Carolina. Um, uh, other, other things, I think, um, uh, you know, working at the local level, working to uh, my colleague, uh, Missy Jones, did amazing work on uncover uncovering the history of the Clinton riots in, 18, in 1875 mm -hmm. and working with our city and our mayor and our council to highlight that research that had never really been highlighted in the city's history. And her work has really transformed that community. Um, uh, and y'all were able to put up a historical marker in the city. She was, I mean, she that. was, yeah. a, a, you know, a thousand percent able to do that. And um, it, it's really, you know, we partnered with the Win Winter Institute for racial reconciliation. Mm -hmm. We partnered with folks uh, in Jackson. We partnered with all kinds of folks to do that work in our community. Um, you know, other things we've been involved with are, um, you know, that the, you and I have worked since 2016 on the Mississippi state flag and mm -hmm. visiting the state and going across the state and having conversations and appealing to Christian communities and churches and um, writing, talking about that history. And uh, it, it gets you engaged in some interesting conversations and meeting people. <laughs> but I absolutely love the grassroots nature of that, Jamar. Wasn't that fun right. to right. see yeah. an entire state of grassroots leadership rise up in a moment and do something, uh, which I don't know if I would have seen in my lifetime. It is an incredible um, privilege. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what an honor to go on statewide radio with you multiple times and, and talk <laughs> with folks about that across the state. Um, also, I, my thoughts began to turn later in my time at Mississippi College because of an amazing president that we had that came in who gave us freedom to sort of engage issues of race at, at mm. the university um, and put together a, an organization called CURE, Christians Understanding Race and Equity. And mm. we were able to um, get together a team of people, draft a mission statement, a vision statement. And we actually came up with, um, with six different pillars of things that we wanted Cure to be able to do. And I'm still in some ways serving as an advisor with, with them to help them think through how do Christians think through issues of race uniquely. And that's not something I think a lot of 
Christian institutions are doing, those who are thinking about race are often reflecting what they're seeing being done in our society or with different organizations. But I think as Christians, we have a unique history and a theology that speaks to doing issues of race and justice that make our approach distinct. Right. And so what we did was we rooted all those pillars in God's word. We rooted all those yeah. pillars in the Bible and in work that had been done at, at other Christian institutions, especially Baptist institutions. And, yeah. um, and, but it took an intentionality in the university leadership. There you go. To yeah. say like, you know what? I want to care for my African-American brothers and sisters. And I want to care for our Native American brothers and sisters and our student and our international student population, because that's what God has called us to do, to care for people mm. made in his image and let us be known for that. And I deeply, deeply appreciate uh, that the administration at Mississippi College encouraged us in that direction. I love so much of what you're saying, because you're, you're, you're talking about. Uh, working on multiple levels. So, so to, you know, college students, you don't even have to confine your work to the campus. You can go in the broader community and work for change, like, like we did on changing the state flag of Mississippi or any other host of issues from um, education and prison to immigration issues. There are other ways to get involved that go beyond the campus, but even on campus, you can work for change, like by forming this group cure that you mentioned, but that takes a cooperation from the leadership and the administration in order to happen. So that's a word to the adults and the leaders at these institutions. It can happen without you, but why not happen with, with you. your cooperation? And uh, let me add, so now you mentioned something about Scooby-Doo. Now I grew up watching Scooby-Doo, okay? <laughs> and it's the kids. Yeah. And uncovered the truth. Look at that. Right? Look at that. And so like, you know, with our students, with this cure initiative, they're the ones who are doing the research and talking to their friends and telling administrators and telling faculty, That's these are things good. we care about. Good. Yes. And when students do that in a large voice, collective voice, that begins to put pressure upon administrators because the institution is dependent upon their tuition dollars. There we go. That and is so, so good. You know, and so, and so if a, a large group of students are saying as Christians, we care about justice in America and we believe it's in our theological tradition, you know, that, that is, that is that, what that, initiates that speaks volumes. That speaks yeah. volumes. And it's and our students participated in our mission drafting and in our and in our um, in our six pillars, and um, uh, one of my students actually uh, uncovered two lynchings that happened in Clinton in 1888 oh and 1890, and we went to the State University, I'm sorry, the State Museum in Mississippi, and found that those two names of those lynchings were not there. Wow! And he found the names. His name's Jeremy Jeremy Watkins. He found the names. And we were able to take those names to the board of aldermen in Clinton, and they approved markers being put up from the Equal Justice Initiative, which will be the second marker put up in Mississippi by the Equal Justice Initiative, because that student took the time to go and find those names. Wow. 
Look at and that. now those and now descendants of those individuals can come back and and find out that history and know what happened. Mm. And the city is going to be a better and stronger city. And the institution is going to be a strong because you know what we found, Jamar? We found that the faculty and staff at Mississippi College in 1890, 1890 after the lynching happened, wrote uh, a, a, a large um, uh, statement basically decrying lynching. Wow. White faculty in the 1890s. Wow. Yeah. And so that had never come out in the institution's history. Um, and so and it's this was be an a undergraduate student who, who unearthed this history. So that's yep. another encouragement that yep. you are the change. Let me ask you one more question, then we'll wrap here. Mm-hmm. You are the university historian at Clemson. And so mm-hmm. you are essentially overseeing how the institution tells the story of itself, its past in particular. How can an institution, particularly a Christian college or university, practically tell the truth about its institutional history in a way that's that's um, honest and candid um, and also, you know, just a high degree of accuracy. How does that happen? Um, I would start with your university archives and special collections and go with specific questions to the archivist about do you have papers or any documents related to people of color who attended this institution? Find out what you can. Uh, it's likely that that has not been written about before or investigated much. Um, so it takes a little bit of investigative uh, fact work like our Scooby-Doo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and and so uh, and then I would say uh, trying to find first African-Americans who attended the university or descendants mm-hmm. and seeing if they'd be willing to do a oral history. Uh, they'd be willing to talk about their experiences um, uh, would be another, another way to go about this. Um, you know, you know, contacting local um, historical societies, seeing what they have on the institutions uh, where you attend, uh, reading any uh, history books about your institution. Typically there with most Christian colleges, there is a mid 20th century book on the, on who was, who was the president and who were the trustees. And then you have some names. So then you mm. can go back and say, okay, what, what were those presidents and trustees doing in 1968? Mm. What were they doing in 1964? when Megar Evers was shot or when Martin Luther King was shot or when integration was happening, what was happening in their board minutes, what was happening in their statements. And then you've, and then you've got all kinds of stuff because you got a name and a date, right? Um, My colleague, uh, Dr. Patrick Connolly has done incredible work on Mississippi college uh, history in the mid 20th century and finding uh, uh, statements from the president about segregation being biblical Right. And him making a very strong argument about that biblically and it going out to Baptist churches across the state um, and just his really hard stances on race in the 1960s that prevented Mississippi College from integrating earlier. And so um, but that comes through, Okay, who was the president? You know, who was what what time am I looking at? What what was happening? The student newspapers. I'm finding all kinds of stuff in the student newspapers. the, the yearbooks, going through the yearbooks, what, what's been digitized in special collections, talking to the historians at your university, telling them you want to do a research project in your class on institutional history. Um, there are so many ways you can get at this. It. 
is so good. And I would encourage every institution, um, particularly uh, Christian higher ed institutions, do an institutional history, do a, do a recent one and an updated one, pay special attention to issues of um, race and racism. And you've just outlined a whole bunch of steps we can do it. Listen, we are going to leave the people want more. And I know <laughs> that they are going to want to learn more from you and keep up from you. What kind of stuff are you working on right now and how can people stay in touch? Um, so you can follow my Twitter at Otis W. Pickett. I'm going to be posting some stuff on Clemson history here pretty soon. I've got an article coming out in a book we're doing on uh, lament and pedagogy in the classroom uh, and how I've helped students process these last 10 years in the classroom mm -hmm. with the historical continuity that we're seeing. Um, I'm working on an article for a book on Clemson history that's coming out uh, in the next couple of years with Clemson press. Um, and, uh, we were, we're, we have historic properties website. We're sort of working on it. Uh, but I would love for people. We just have such an amazing assortment of historical properties at Clemson. We've mm. got the John C. Calhoun home. We've got the Andrew Pickens home, who was a, a an American revolutionary general, Dr. Thomas is doing incredible work on enslaved people and convict lessees at Clemson through the Woodland Cemetery Project. We've got, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, David Marcus and Joshua Catalano's work on uncovering an American Revolutionary War site, a fortress. Um, we can really tell, and, we're, and I'm working on the 60th anniversary of the integration of the university in 1963 with Harvey right. Gantt in 1963. So we can really tell the broader story of America through the lens of Clemson University. Wow. And so I would just love people to come and visit these sites and learn history. Basically we start with the native, with Cherokee people and go, we can go all the way up to the civil rights movement and beyond and have historic spaces that speak to every time period. I love that. Um, so that's really what I'd love to do moving forward is highlight those, those historic properties for folks to come. I'm signing up for the campus tour with you as my guide. Yeah, man. Come Dr. on. Otis Pickett, thank Go you Tigers. so much for your time. All right, Jamar. <laughs> hey, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for incredible work. Keep doing it, brother. Yes.